and welcome back or welcome to the On Coaching Podcast with Magnus and Marcus. I am Steve Magnus, the Deputy Director of High Performance West, coach of the University of Houston, joined by my good friend, colleague, partner in crime, John Marcus, the Director of High Performance West. John, what is up? You know what's up. We're here to give the people what they want. Come on now. It's time. It is time. It is time. It's it's 2019. Can you believe that? Oh, I can. Yes, time flies when you're having fun. That so. that is true. And uh, rumor has it that you're getting in back back to shape. Me, oh not my gosh. so much, but you, yes. Hey, I'm just trying to um, you know pick up the slack for all us rusty coaches out there. So it, you know, one day we're gonna have a uh, old retired coaches uh, race. Before they, yeah, you know. who can make it the furthest without pulling a muscle? <laughs> <laughs> Just that's all it is. Who can make it the furthest without pulling a muscle? <laughs> we'll bring we'll bring Mike Smith and Danny Mackey. We'll relive our glory days. Oh and, my god, uh, I don't think we'll make it a lap. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So besides chatting about our uh, retired coaching race. Um, this week we've got a what I think is a very interesting topic and one near and dear to my heart. Um, something that I've constantly fought against for the better part of my coaching career, and that is that there the idea that there are magic training paces. Oh, I feel another all-time great podcast episode coming on right now. Steve gets super heated about this, and I, so do I. But. Man, we're just going to put a lot of gasoline on this flame. <laughs> All right. Now that we've got the hype train rolling. Uh, so what do we mean by magic training paces? So I'll break it down and then we'll jump right into it. So in the world of distance running, or actually in the world of endurance sport, we've come to believe that there are certain paces or certain intensities or intensity zones that, that do more than others, Right. So if we run at, you know, we'll just throw out a number, 80% of VO2 max, then that is, that is the zone that does something much better than, let's say, 75%, right? Mm-hmm. You might have these, like, black, black hole zones that, that don't do anything in between. So it's this belief that, tr- that we need to check the box on these different training intensities, training zones, in order to maximize performance. And... You know, a little bit of history, if we look at where did this come from, it actually rose with the uh, the rise in the knowledge of uh, physiology, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Where we started to be able to classify and name some of these paces that we were, intensities that we were running. So people started to measure things like VO2 max and said, hey, at around this pace, people run at their uh, VO2 max. This must be important. And then came, hey, lactate threshold occurs at around this intensity, this this pace. This must be important. Or the latest newfangled one, critical velocity. Up, oh, this occurs at this percentage of max. It must be important. And we're here to tell you that, well, there might be importance to that, um, there are no magical training paces. There is nothing that is vastly superior to anything else. It's all relative, right? Exactly. The thing you have to do is you have to ask yourself, where do we see similarities in this type of presentation and thought process? And you see it in nutrition, right? Every year, there's some kind of new nutrient or food that is the magic food, acai berries, pomegranate, beet juice, coconut oil we keep going on and on and on right like just eat this one nutrient or food and you're just gonna magically just be no no that's not how nature works right you know more and more we always have to go back to nature like i posted a tweet out the other day where it said you know first art then science and finally nature and what i meant by that is there's an artistry about any craft that one must understand it you're just drawn to it it's exciting it's it calls you and then you want to know the technical aspects of it the x's and o's how to get really refined you know and that's the science of it right test theories and have it be replicable over and over and over again but finally what we all learn is it's nature science is just explaining nature nature was first and then came science it wasn't science then nature and this is a very similar uh, circumstance and you gotta remember right 
before the rise of physiology and the rise of the ability to um, compartmentalize and reduce all these different elements, Ron Clark went out there and, you know, set a bunch of world records and was the first man under 28 minutes racing four times a week, running three times a day as he felt. You know what I mean? So the reality is modern training and physiology is important and it's useful to know, but it's not essential in terms of there are examples of many, many athletes who have come before and many, many athletes who will come after and coaches who didn't know everything about anything, but still were able to get themselves prepared for them because they understood that that athlete or this circumstance or environment was an experiment of one and they just focused on themselves and what they needed to do to be the best for a race day. Now, it's very comforting too, and it's easy gets you know called by the siren song that if you just do this one magic pace, that your all your training woes and efforts will you know be uh, alleviated. And it's not the case at all. It's it's you have to ask yourself, well, yeah, if you haven't been doing a certain training pace or training intensity or duration, and then you start doing it from scratch, in the first four to six weeks, we know you're going to get you know, a big gain. Why? Clean slate phenomena. Go back to podcast one. You know, you always, we always got to remember the clean slate phenomena. And then once we get past that threshold, what happens in that plateau of mastery or plateau of, you know, gains where you don't see anything happening? Now what? So we always are, I, I think, um, astute to go back and look at nature. So, so I was at a, uh, a coaching conference uh, in Canada a couple weeks ago, and Steven Seiler, the famed uh, researcher behind the 80-20 analysis or 80-20 training stuff, um, presented a great slide on a study he was involved in and when he looked at um, the periodization of like interval training. Right, and they had three different groups and three different styles of intervals that they did, and it ranged. I don't remember exactly, but it ranged to everyone. Maybe there was like short intervals of like, you know, ten by two minutes, and then there were medium length of like you know four by six minutes, and then there were long intervals of like, you know, uh, I don't know three by twelve minutes, something in that range. Right. So you had short, medium, and long. And what they did is they did these intervals twice a week along with their easy distance stuff and they would do that for i think it was like three or four weeks and then switch to the next right and they were after they said hey we want to know what what's best right should people do you know long intervals and go to short should they go short intervals to long should it not really matter in terms of we'll go long short medium um what did they look at and it was really interesting. The data they presented basically showed that um, regardless of where they started, they adapted like really quickly in those those first couple weeks to whatever they were doing. And then they plateaued. And it didn't it didn't really matter if they did 16 minute intervals to start or two minute intervals to start. It was they were going to adapt and then plateau. And then when something else was introduced, they were going to adapt a little bit and then plateau. Um, what order? Mm -hmm didn't matter and i think that that is another demonstration of that that clean slate phenomenon where it's like if you provide a new stimulus you are going to adapt to it and it's going to seem like magic right yeah and you're gonna say oh oh man we just introduced this this type of training this must be the key this has to be it mm -hmm. you know and what happens mm -hmm. What happens a lot of times is is our athletes get fooled by that, right? We know this as coaches. What happens when uh, you uh, you take an athlete and you come off summer base mileage, maybe, and um, and then you um, then you start introducing interval workouts? What happens? Athletes get really fast for a little bit, and then your athletes say, "Hey." The key to running fast was doing these quick interval workouts. Why am I doing all this other stuff? This is the key. It's like, no, mm -hmm. they no. Just, that's, that's just a momentary thing. So I think as coaches, we have to get out of falling for this, like, you know, short-term acute phase and, like, you know, retroactively assigning too much importance to a thing that looks like it improved without seeing the big picture. 
And I think, too, it's our posture and our interpretation and our positioning that needs to be questioned as well. If you go back to Steve and Brad's book, Peak Performance, they lay it out there real simple, right? What's Remind me of this equation that was so simple. Stress Steve. plus rest equals growth. Right. So remember, adaptation is a recovery response to a stress. Without a recovery period, there is no improvement. Long and fast running, sprinting, strength training, etc., they all cause damage to our bodies. And in the recovery response to those activities is the source of improvement. I'm going to say that again. The recovery response to these activities is the source of improvement. Not the activities, the recovery response. So this is where I get kind of heated about everyone saying, oh, this is the best method to damage ourselves, right? Because that's essentially what we're talking about when we're talking about workouts. How do we damage the athletes? What's the best way to damage them? Now, we can go out and say there's a lot of good ways to damage them, and Steven Sellers point, point that exactly correctly. Like, you can damage them like this. You can damage them for this long. You can damage them for that long. You damage at this intensity. You're just creating damage. How you recover how you adapt, that is the source of improvement. We cannot forget that. And far too often, it's so sexy to talk about ways to damage ourselves or damage athletes. But yet, why are we not sitting and saying, hey, what are the best methods or modalities for recovery? Steve, what's the number one method or modality for recovery? Sleep. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. Sleep. Like, it's not sexy, but if... I guarantee you if you have two athletes, right, and I would love someone to do this study, like or like a set of athletes, just put them through the all through the exact same training, like just take a bunch of like high school 932 miles, put them all through the exact same training and they can't and they do exactly the same stuff all together, same paces, big group thing, but then make it so one group gets four hours of sleep, one group gets six, one group gets eight and one group gets 10 a night for six weeks. I bet you a gazillion dollars that the 10 hour sleep a night group is going to see the most rapid improvement. Yeah, hundred percent. And that's a good way to look at it is the, the damage that, that reframes yeah. it a little bit um, mm -hmm. from just putting all the emphasis on the workout, improving you. It's not oh, that workout damages you and then you have to recover and come back. Yeah. And, I, I always remember like something Jerry Schumacher told me early on in my career. He goes, you know, especially because we love to work at, like, say, the elite or the, the highest level athletes and, like, the crazy workouts that they're doing. You know, we, like, we tend to glorify these ultra-difficult, like, gut-wrenching gut interval sessions as the secret to big improvement. But the reality is, for most of those athletes, those, that workout is just a reflection of the fitness they already possess. They already have, right? They're not, you know... Why would Jerry like damage an Evan Digger and like have him go deep to the well? No, no, that fitness was built over the course of months of aerobic, you know, development, strength and conditioning, etc. Years, in fact, for say Evan, right? It's it, it's a multiplier. It compounds, but we think in such short-term cycles, right? We've been conditioned to think in three-month uh, indoor and outdoor seasons or cross-country seasons. How are we not thinking in? Why is the cycle of thought not? you know, 36 months, right? Instead of 12. But yet we, we have this short-term view. And so we try to pack all this stuff in when in reality, you know, and I think Steve can speak to this as well with athletes he's worked. The athletes that I've coached that have had a lot of success, I knew that they were going to have success when they had six to nine months of uninterrupted, consistent, not exciting training without any blips before their big breakout. You know, same Danny Mackey can attest to this too. I was talking to him the other day. He goes, I knew Drew Wendell was about to do something special in indoor because he only missed nine days the previous year from training. You know, like that's a key performance indicator that the Beast, Brooks Beast track is how many days off or how many unplanned, you know, um, absences from training do you have for whatever reason, illness, injury, et cetera. And when Drew went to only nine, oh man, that was the thing that really set him up to, so think about that, right? His whole 2017 preparation or training and racing, et cetera, without much, you know, um, missing and a lot of recovery and a lot of uh, adaptation, that set him up for silver medal indoors in 2018. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a very basic measure, but it's a, it's a really good one. You know, a couple of years ago, I looked at um, 
at our our top athletes in terms of improvement on our college team versus like practices missed and you know it correlated extremely well where the people who were able to show up the most got better right and the people who either got banged up or didn't show up to things like they didn't and it's it's almost too simple right Mm -hmm. but it it it's the it's the most important thing yeah, and so, you you know, think about, again, go back to the garden, right? Go back to nature. You know, I've, I've said this many times. It's, you know, always bet on nature and be in harmony with nature. Just because you can't see the seed sprouting and you can't see the seed growing underneath the soil doesn't mean it's not progressing, right? And that, a lot of times, what happens with training, we get to these plateaus and we think it's a plateau. We're like, I'm not getting weekly progress. Oh, my gosh, what's wrong with me? What's wrong with the athlete? Why are your, your time not getting faster? Well, sometimes there's a delayed compounding effect that happens. And as you just do the work for a month, maybe the athlete doesn't get better. But then in terms of like week-to-week races or you know week-to-week progressions that you've fictitiously or arbitrarily invented for them <laughs> because there's some periodization that data table that says that has to be like this, this theoretical thing, right? In reality, sometimes it takes a little bit for things to compound and for things to actually get digested and adapted. You know, like I always remind people, athletes I work with, that m- the majority of times you're not even going to feel the effects of, say, like a central nervous system-based workout, like the pot reap the positive Im- impact from it f- from about, you know, maybe if you're really mega super fit, like two weeks after this, but most likely 28 days, right? Roughly, give or take, depending on your fitness or degree of consistency going in. And for like aerobic based stuff, that's probably going to be like a six week delay. <laughs> and, and, and you know, the, the great part about this, or the interesting part about this is that delay leads to a misattribution of what caused you to improve. Yes, ding, 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 winner. <laughs> and, and that's what we're talking about. A, a lot of right now is that it's easy to misattribute what what got us there you know a lot of times Mm -hmm. athletes do it all the time they look out what did they do the week or two their best performance right and like that might tell you something but it doesn't tell you the it doesn't tell you a lot (laughs) you know it it tells you maybe like how you didn't screw up and over overcook yourself leading into a race right but it, it doesn't tell you how you got to that point and that's where I think we run into the danger of assigning, you know, or saying that we have these magic intensities is because, like, we can't we can't attribute what what changes performance that well from a like just a artistic standpoint of coaches watching, or a even a scientific standpoint of saying, hey, if you do this, you're you you know you're gonna improve. A, B, and C, and D. Like we we can't do it that well because it's such a complex, big picture. So it's hard to break it down into things. And instead, what we know is we need we know we need these variety of ingredients. And it's not that any of them are special. It's just that these variety of ingredients will get us to a point, depending on the race, uh, where the athlete can perform. Well, I'm going to try to break it down. I've been mulling over this for a long time and. This first time I'm presenting it and so I can get Steve's honest opinion and feedback without him knowing and also for him to rip it to shreds if he wants. But what I, how I've been thinking more recently about training is actually what we're trying to do is create anti-fragility or fatigue tolerance in athletes, right? So there's five main types of fatigue. You have central nervous system fatigue, you have metabolic fatigue, muscular fatigue, energy fatigue, and emotional fatigue, right? So those five fatigues, now, in any type of training activity, you can emphasize one or maybe two or have, a, uh, you know, a correlative or secondary or tertiary fatigue that also has benefited from that, right? Because that's what any type of training is, is expanding the capacity or the tolerance to that type of fatigue, right? Say acidosis training with lactate threshold training or high um, um, speed endurance type training, right? What we're doing is we're creating tolerance to the acidic state in our blood, right? That happens when all these positive protons release from the ATP molecules and get in and just sit there, right? 
otherwise what happens is you slow down substantially and or throw up. So, <laughs> but, you know, so think about that, right? So when you're saying, oh, threshold, you know, aerobic training, lactic threshold, anaerobic threshold, you know, whichever one you want to call it, you know, speed endurance, et cetera, glycolytic, you know, type uh, energy uh, pathways, whatever you're talking about, you're talking about in a very simple term, one of the five types of fatigues or emphasizing mainly one and then trying to get the others to kind of build tolerance to as well. And that is what adaptation is. That is what learning is. That is what growth, development, getting better. And in my opinion is it's getting a higher tolerance to one or all of those fatigues. Yeah, I like that approach. I think it's changing the um, it's changing the, the focal point, right? right? Yeah. Where the focal point shifts from, hey, I want you to run at this intensity to what are we trying to accomplish in this workout? Mm. And I think, you know, if you look back or if you think back as a coach, what are you doing? When you're writing those workouts... You're thinking about what am I trying to accomplish during this, right? When I sit there and write my workout for my athlete, you know, let's take uh, Brian Barraza, for example, last year as a college kid, you know, I was writing his workouts and dictating because I, I knew where I wanted him to go in terms of fatigue, right? Mm-hmm. Is, yeah. is this a, a go to the well, feel like your, your uh, you know, legs are about to fall off and can't move and throw up and that's and that's like all five fatigues right exactly or it or is it something that like hey i don't want them to be emotionally spent but i want some 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 sort of work on it so i'm going to get some neuromuscular you know fatigue Mm -hmm. right so like you're you're almost patterning that if you think about it as a coach but again it's that shifting of the focal point that i think is the important point because I think when we look at the physiological model, the model is is to assume if I run at this pace or this intensity, then, you know, B will happen. Right. But if you change the focal point and say, hey, I'm looking to try and get to B, then what, what am I, what do I do to get there? Right. Mm-hmm. Instead of making the assumption this pace equals B. It's like simple, and maybe I'm going to lose our uh, followers, our listeners on this, but I think if you map it out in terms of like just a simple math equation on like what are you focusing on, just like that stress plus rest equals growth. Simple allows you to understand the process and what are you focusing on. I'd suggest the same thing for like looking at workouts because I think where we where we run into a hole here is when we make those assumptions um, that if we, let's say, let's take the newfangled term, uh, if we run at critical vo- velocity, then we're going to get, you know, aerobic adaptations in our, our you know, fast twitch muscle fibers. Well, there is z- absolutely zero way, zero, to validate that statement. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't do it. It's right. it's it's impossible. And even if I if I was to isolate everything in a lab and like control everything, which would be really hard, and I saw, hey, after doing this type of training only, this they improve, you know, these aerobic enzymes and this fast twitch muscle. Well, that that tra- that can't translate to the masses, right? That applies to the one individual that you did this or the handful that you did this because that's what exercise physiology is. Um, as small studies. So mm-hmm. I think like when we look at these things, we need to step back and, and think about these things, right? One of my favorite studies to put up, and I'll try and include the uh, the picture in the show notes, is is they took all these athletes and they 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 tested them with VO2 max, all this different different stuff, and they said, hey, we're going to train you all at I think it was like eighty percent of VO2 max. So some sort of tempo-ish effort, right? 80% mm-hmm. of VO2 max. That's the training pace. That's We're going to do it all in the lab. I think it was on bikes for like four to six weeks, something like that. We're going to take biopsies, and we're going to look at you know what happened. And the variation in terms of looking at like stuff on the cellular level from like enzymes, you know, aerobic and anaerobic enzymes to looking at some – you know, other markers that are very, you know, damage markers, all this stuff 
were wide and vast. Mm. And they were all training at their defined 80%. And when I saw that, like, I'm sitting there being like, all right, well, that tells you that it's it's pretty much impossible and, and meaningless to, you know, use percentages of, of max or to have, like, say that everyone's going to respond in the same exact way at this intensity because there's so much variability in, in humans. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, and we see this, right? We see this out as coaches when we look and we say, hey, you know, uh, my top three runners are all similar in the 5K. I'm going to go uh, go do a tempo run uh, based off, you know, a percentage of their 5K. And, you know, Johnny over there is, is breathing super easy. Well, you know, uh, Brian can't talk and James, like is breathing crazy like you see the variation in it even though they're training at very similar percentages or similar what there should be thresholds or whatever have you like it's easy when you look at it you know so and i love the audacity of coaches you know who you know misinterpret these charts or tables or prescriptions and then at you know have athletes do the work and then they don't run the time that they're supposed to correlate to and like well you messed up you know, the coach saying to the athlete, no, 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 coach, you messed up because you couldn't see the N of one experiment, the individual athlete here where the mo- mental model or the chart or the concept that you're using is just an abstract, is just a guide. It's just a, it's a map. We always have to remember though, right? The map does not equal the territory. And I think it's very comforting to want the map to be your hack, your shortcut, because we human beings love the shortcuts. Oh my goodness, so much. But this is really hard work to get, you know, someone to improve and be the best they can be. You know, I was having this conversation the other day with Daniel Herrera. It's like, look, Dan, it's just you versus you now. I don't care who's in the race. I don't care who you're lining up against. This shouldn't be a concern. All we're trying to track is, are you getting better? Are you better, you know, compared to a previous incarnation of you? That is success. That's progress. That's mastery. You can control that. You can work on that. But you can't control if you're better than this competitor or that competitor. If you beat them today or they beat you tomorrow, that's that's out of your scope. And why would we sit here obsessing about those externals when the only thing we have is the individuality and the internal? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, as coaches and athletes sit here and listen to this and maybe they're confused or not – but I, I would challenge you to go watch other people do a, a workout, right? Go watch your teammates or, you know, friends, a, a group of them preferably, do a workout. And and watch and see if you can notice the different levels and kinds of fatigue within that group, right? It could be four or five guys doing uh, 1K repeats. And, and watch their different breaking points and when you see stuff falter and all that stuff. That right there is the goal that's the indicator of what you're trying to do right mm-hmm. that that is it okay versus this hey i'm gonna assign you a, a exact pace or intensity and like you have to be on this and if you're not like you're you're done for i think the best demonstration of this is actually living and training in houston in the summer mm. right um you know, I was, I was actually talking to a, a good friend and a, a great coach, um, Forrest Braden, who's over at uh, William & Mary now, and we were talking about, hey, man, like, we can't do those 10-mile uh, tempo runs in the summer or those long, long, long things in the summer, and he can't either as much as he could when he was at UCLA, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. So we were talking about, all right, how do we get, how do we get a similar effect without, you know, cranking them because they're going to be burnt emotionally psychologically physically physiologically if we kind of do these crazy things so you know um how do you do that so it's a different challenge and you can't go based on the intensities even if you adjust the intensity even we say hey you know i'm gonna give them 20 seconds a mile uh slower because of the heat and humidity well you still can't do 10 miles at that intensity even if you've adjusted because it's 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 a different it's a different fatigue. Mm-hmm. So, like, keep that in my mind as you're going through these things. And that's where it's important to do a complete and thorough diagnostic on end, you know, um, frequent 
diagnostic on your athletes, right? You have to go through and check each and, and make an assessment. Okay, where, you know, how how wide is or thin is their central nervous tolerance or fatigue? You know, what about their me- metabolic fatigue, muscular fatigue, energy fatigue, and emotional fatigue? What does that tolerance look like for each athlete? We spend as distance coaches a lot of time obsessing about the metabolic fatigue component because we erroneously think that it will magically impact all the other ones um, beneficially. And um, that thing, I think, is super vital for us to understand is is that the – I think that that's super vital for us to understand the emotional fatigue is one that it's hard to put a hard uh, number on. We can put a hard number on, say, the metabolic fatigue, right? And that's what we do with all the varying paces and the different energy pathways that um, ATP is utilized and how our body uh, interprets fuels. And we call all these things these, you know, different, very cool physiological terms. And that's great and that's important to know. We're not discrediting that at all. But what I think is we have to think about is central nervous fatigue. That can take over and stop an athlete cold, you know, in a heartbeat. And also the muscular fatigue as well can do the same thing. So if you're – what I mean by muscular fatigue is it, are your joints or how you're loading improperly, right? Are you getting overused soft tissue injuries? And if you haven't addressed, say – you know, some type of strength conditioning um, regime that's consistent, if you haven't addressed mobility, and if you haven't addressed biomechanics, that muscular fatigue is going to exponentially increase and limit an athlete as well. Same thing with energy fatigue, right? Your energy fatigue, if the athlete's not fueled well, if they're not getting enough sleep, if they're running on highly damaged muscles, right, with high cortisol because of different stress and everything, that's going to be important too is understanding that energy fatigue is something that that needs to be managed and created and increased as well. So it's important, I think, if we're going to, you know, re-pivot and think in this model, because they're all just models that are on offer, right? But if you're saying, how for each athlete do we assess the different types of fatigues? Where's their biggest liability right now? What's holding them back the most? Where's a big strength, something that we can build on? And where are other ones that are going to be important priorities um, later on once we clean up this biggest liability. And that's how I always work, right? It's what's the biggest thing holding the athlete back right now? Nine times out of ten, it's not the metabolic component because uh, the metabolic component, that just requires a lot of consistency of training and effort. But what are the things that limit consistency? And that's where we have to ask, okay, what are those limiting factors in that fatigue catalog that we, you know, in our taxonomy that we've offered here today? And if you do that, it becomes very simple, I think, in my mind, to decide what paces or intensities someone should run because you're basically saying, what damage should we cause today? Is today a high damage day, a low damage day, a medium damage day? What was the previous day's worth of damage? Not just in training. But then two, compounding outside of training in the other 21 hours of the day where they stressed out from a test, breaking up you know, with a, a, a boyfriend or girlfriend. Did they not get a lot of sleep? Did they travel? Uh, were they up really late, right? There's that study that you know, I was just you know, published that says even one night staying up late can have a big disruption you know, on an athlete or any person's hormonal levels. Huge disruption, right? Those subtleties while you know require a lot of extra digging you know are much more vital in my mind than saying we're going to run critical velocity or vo2 max or your lactic threshold workout this week and that's the thing that's going to get you good yeah exactly i mean i i think again it might sound like nuance um but it's important to like reframe things and i think you know if if i step back and i look out well why do why do we focus so much on these intensity zones or these magical workouts that you know people think need i think it's it's one because we as humans we love to classify things right Mm -hmm. we love neat order and classification and then the second part is uh it's the way we're taught 
So if you look at the endurance uh, coaching world, we're basically taught from a physiological model, right? We we learn the physiology in these coaches, you know, clinics where we we look at, hey, this is VO2 max, this is lactate threshold, this is, you know, anaerobic capacity. And that's all really good to know. But what happens is when we always come at things from those models, then we based, when the, then we are saying that this is the most important thing and that our training should be based on this and our training should be based on checking these models, these physiological, but really metabolic you know, zones off. And when you say, hey, we're going to check these metabolic zones off, then what we're doing there is saying that, like, this is what's important. And we're forgetting, in your parlance, all these other kinds of fatigue, mm-hmm. right? And and also, too, it becomes a compliance activity then. Yes. Because you have to check the boxes off. The athlete has to check the box off. If they don't, something's wrong with them. If they don't get the benefit they're supposed to get from this type of workout, well, then there's something wrong with you. And I think... You need to turn the mirror around, coach, and say, actually, maybe and question your thinking, and is your thinking askewed? Because our job, right, is to do no harm by the athletes. Our job as coaches is to help and enhance. Our job, like Alcarius said, is not to motivate, is but just to tether out and encourage and guide that person's passion for where they want to take themselves. Yeah, exactly. Couldn't have said it better. I think that... You know, I, I think that's an important concept to to get across or to wrap your head around as a coach, because it's easy to fall into that trap of of check the box, right? Of hey, I did this, I've checked my aerobic stuff, and I think, or my VO two max or whatever have you. And I think the other part that is really important is if you look back and you know your history of training, like you alluded to at the beginning with Ron Clark, is that somehow think about it somehow runners have stumbled upon realizing that they need to train at a wide variety of intensities right Mm -hmm. (laughs) and that you know somehow they can do repeats at around this pace and make it and around this pace and make it etc etc and they just kind of figured this out right they didn't say ron clark didn't say i'm gonna do 2400s at this pace because i'm trying to run out my lactate threshold or critical velocity or vo2 max right he he kind of just did it because this was probably going to get him the level of fatigue and speed that he needed on on that day right zatapec as well right if you look at his famed 40 to 60 by 400 right he didn't you know assign a pace he kind of figured it out and i think there's there's almost a beauty to having uh, you know this wide variety of intensities and paces figured out um you know intuitively by we'll call it nature um, right. mm-hmm. before having to come in and explain why these might might work or why these might be doing something to our body. And you got to look at, too, like Bill Rogers, Jerry Lingen, like these, you know, even like Peter Snell, these high, high mileage guys, they knew something, right? I mean, Bill Rogers ran triples, I mean, with with regularity, Steve Jones, same deal, triples, right? And we can look at those outliers, but I I always wonder, like, what did they know? You know, as well as, like, say, Peter Coe and Seb Coe. They knew something, too, and Peter Coe has put a lot of books out there, and he invested a lot of time and energy for the middle distance runner specifically in creating a very high acidosis buffer through doing highly skill-specific uh, training. I was just reading something with Peter Cohen. He knew, like Sebco's acid test was essentially doing eight times 300 meters at 36 to 34 with 45 seconds rest. When Seb could do that, not eyes popping out of his head with minimal fatigue, because being able to run that fast, you got to think of the degree of compass that you have and the degree of fat- anti-fatigue or fatigue tolerance you have, and all those. Um, areas right if you're running eight times 300 at 36 to 34 with 45 seconds rest i mean metabolic fatigue pretty pretty high tolerance central nervous fatigue pretty high tolerance M- muscular high tolerance energy high tolerance emotional high tolerance like 
yeah, you already set world records. <laughs> but the way they did it was it was a progressive exposure. They would run that workout. And what he would do is he would run first he get the paces down, right? So get the pace down. So they get the pace down, 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 down. And then once he could do like six to eight times 40 or 39 or 38, then they start to cut the recoveries, right? Because he knew there was a threshold. Like you can't just go here and, all right, we're just going to go run 300s at 30 and call it good. But he knew, okay, skill specific, what are we trying to do in the mile? What type of acidosis tolerance or buffering are we trying to get? Okay, we want to get here to get here to get here. And so it was very scientific in terms of it was very regimented. It was progressive. They only progress when like they had more than enough data, not one session, but multiple sessions. And Seb also being like, yeah, it's kind of feeling really easy now to go at 40s with two minutes rest. Okay, we can, you know, start to chop it down. That that was signaling to uh, Co that it was time to progress. And you know what I mean? That really worked. And but also too acidosis training from like say lactate tolerance with tempo runs of 20 minutes, like the Daniels model, two two times 20 minutes, that can work too. So it's tough, like as Steve said, to discern, and that's the key. Every coach has to be able to discern, kind of, you know, things are too good to be true from tried and true principles that we just can't, you know, um, wishy wash on at all. Even when it comes to something like, say, peaking, right? You know, V Hill's peaking was a drastic cut in volume and intensity to make sure the athlete felt really fresh. A lot of other athletes, you know, are, and people are like, oh, no peaking at all. We maintain the volume we have because that's going to disrupt homeostasis. But then, too, V Hill was coaching athletes at altitude at high intensity. And at 7,000 feet, maybe that's what you have to do at Adam State versus at your sea level. Maybe disrupting the homeostasis at sea level is not a good idea, right? So discern those those um, nuances or you know ingredients that influenced those people's success because it can't be blanket. There's no such thing. It's impossible. Same thing with altitude training, right? I remember Robert Chapman presented a study from USATF that showed not everyone's a high responder to altitude training, <laughs> believe it or not. So even though they know 7,000 feet is kind of like the – the highest area for a response, not everyone, even people going up with like high hemoglobin, high ferritin levels, they didn't respond. Like Alan Webb, not a responder to altitude at all. It actually deflated rather than elevated. However, for like, you know, athletes I've worked with, like Tara Welling, very high responder. We'd send her up two, three times a year because you know what? She got a response and we knew it worked for just her. Now I didn't send everyone, everyone I coached up to altitude, but only her. Because we knew it worked for her. And that's kind of the beauty of stepping back and seeing seeing training as this, hey, what what sort of adaptation am I trying to get? What sort of stimulus can I I I do? Because it's you know, it's like the example you said there. If if we take, you know, try and improve your aerobic fitness or tempo or whatever you have you, you can do that traditional Daniel style. Or you could go run uh, 150 meter repeats with Igloy on a track, and yeah, and yeah. Uh, you know get the get the same thing done, even though one's doing a four mile tempo and one's doing 150 meter repeats with 50 meter float or whatever, whatever have you, and they're doing them at different intensities and different paces and all that stuff, and that's why I think it's just really important to get away from this this magic training zone pace intensity model whatever you want to call it because that just limits your creativity right it limits it limits your options for how to solve the coaching problem right if if john and i are sitting there coming up designing training if we only have a couple intensities and workout styles to go to then our options get really limited with the vast array of humans out there and the vast array of, of ways they, they respond to things, right? So I think it's important to give yourself some freedom, give yourself some creativity and say, hey, I'm trying to tackle this problem. I'm not trying to you know run at, at this, uh, this magic uh, pace. And the best way to do that is you know, there's two avenues that I have found for me that afford me that. One – 
continuous and vicious studying, reading, you know, like just go back, see see what everyone and anyone did. I mean, whether it's the Penguin or Igloy or Sarity or John McDonald, like, you know, you just go, go, go and just read and just say, huh, that's an interesting way they solved that problem. And then two, I think, you know, this is where we as a coaching community really need to um, make advances is ask your peers, ask your colleagues, ask your mentors, ask them. I ask Stephen, like Danny Mackey all the time. Hey, what do you guys think? Hey, what are your thoughts on this? Hey, I, I'm not sure about this. You know, I just ask and ask and ask and ask. Like, you know, it's not like it's a, supposed to be a riddle and I'm the one who has to solve it and be the king of the hill. It's like, I mean, I, I definitely have my biases when it comes to solving problems based on my knowledge and experience and wisdom and understanding. But other people have more, you know, intelligence or experience or understanding than I do in certain areas. So I'll ask them. And, and you know what? I've never regretted asking someone's opinion about how to solve a training problem. Because at the end of the day, right, successful training is not only hard work, but it involves a lot of thought and constant decision making. That is the hardest thing to encapsulate because you just have to be decisive and you have to trust your gut rather than kind of wish and wash. Now, not we're not sitting here and saying that critical philosophy has no value whatsoever. There's definitely value there. I don't I I, I I'd be hubristic to discredit and say otherwise but it's one ingredient it's one nutrient the acai berry is good for you i do not disagree that a blueberry has antioxidants yes include them in the diet but don't go and say okay i'm going to make my diet now disproportionately blueberries because we said this is the magic fruit (laughs) yeah you know and that's part of probably one of the reasons why that analogy works really well it's not that blueberries are bad for you they're good for you right you They're should, great. You should be eating blueberries, but you should you shouldn't make your whole diet blueberries, right? right? You shouldn't make the majority of your diet. You should have you should follow the tried and true but never really uh, appreciated advice of like eating diverse, healthy foods, right? Um, yeah, and, what's worked for a long time, you know, yeah. it hasn't killed us, right? It's like, and that's where we inherit you know, the mistakes of all the previous generations, all the previous coaches and athletes that come before us. So we're actually sitting in a great position, but you do have to go back and you have to be a thorough student of history. Yeah, and that's why I think it's incredibly important to to do the work. And if you look at, you know, things John has put out on High Performance West, I've put on on Science of Running, a lot of it is, and listen to this podcast too much, a lot of it is diving through the history i mean i was actually today uh for our uh high performance west scholar program i was looking at a couple books from like the 1900s 1907 i think was one on oh, yeah on what they what they were doing and you know was it groundbreaking no but at the time it was and what it does is it gives you an appreciation for how are they solving this problems? How did we start this journey towards the training paradigm that we're at now? And it was interesting because, you know, in that one article, it was written by uh, James Sullivan, who uh, you might better known for the Sullivan Award for amateur athletes. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was talking about training and he was talking about the fear of of what they called staleness at that point. Uh, which we now call overtraining, and he was, you know, outlining some of the things that he thought staleness, which, you know, corresponds pretty well to what the research says. But it was really interesting, and he noted that everyone was worried about overtraining, but the American athletes didn't have enough endurance or stamina compared to the British athletes who were doing (laughs) more, more volume. (laughs) So you see the beginnings of saying, hey – Maybe, maybe our American folks, we need to run a little bit more, right? <laughs> Which, you know, when, again, at that point, no one was doing that much. But, you know, two or three days of uh, run a 400 or run a 200 or something like that, one getting the job done. But you can see that thought process going and understand where where we came from to get to the point we're at now. And this is one thing, going back to nature, I know about every single human being on the planet that is free of deformities or um you know uh, any kind of a dysfunction whether cognitive or physical is 
you're a learning machine. You can learn so fast. Like I've read 75 books this last year, completed 75 books. It, it was it was like Neo in the Matrix, like I know Kung Fu. Like you just can learn so quick. Watch a baby learning how to walk. They can they learn how to walk very rapidly or people who learn languages. And the reason, say, a lot of children can learn so quickly is not because of how we used to think the brain was more plastic. They just have less biases and hangups about failing and learning, failing and learning. And that's that's how we learn. Right. We learn by doing. You know, I was talking to my father the other day and I go how the school system teaches kids today is unfortunate because the way we teach kids is we say you have to have the right answer. There is the answer and is the right answer. And if you don't have that one, you're wrong. But if we taught a little kid how to walk that way, say you all learn how to walk, you have to know how to walk now. You just it's time to know how to walk. No, the kid would never walk. But what we do is they get up, they fall, we encourage them. They walk a few steps, they plateau. We help them a little bit. We get them, you know, they walk, they fall. But we keep encouraging them every step of the way, right? We keep saying, you're getting better. You're improving for you. It's not about can you walk, can you be the the earliest baby to walk ever? It's just about just get to walking and you can do it. And that, I think, is really important to, to look at and know and realize we are learning machines and frequency. Frequency is the key, right? How do you learn a language? You go immerse yourself and only speak that language because you have to frequently use it. Bill Rogers, frequency. He was running three times a day for three years. Then he won Boston. Frequency. You know, but you, the goal is everyone only has so high of a tolerance of frequency that they can do an activity because of the damage. And so you have to ask, if I'm going to subject this athlete to this workout, how much damage am I causing? How much damage do I think? And then being like, say, Charlie Munger, create a safety of margin or a moat and say, okay, it's gonna, we're going to do five by a mile at 5K pace with three minutes rest. That's probably going to create a lot of damage. So I'm going to give them three days rest at least because there's all this damage created. And if we need to take more rest and recovery because the damage was more than I anticipated when I wrote this, that tells me that one – they might have a longer recovery horizons and therefore not be as fit as I thought, or two, maybe not taking care of, you know, themselves in an appropriate fashion away from the track. That's in our dialogue. So instead of saying the the other way to say is, well, here's this outline. It has to be like this: five by mile, five k pace on this day. Two days later, critical velocity. Two days later, you know, two times twenty minutes at lactic threshold. A day later, like long run, we tend to just create the scheme and then fit the athletes in the scheme in kind of this Western mindset. And my challenge and what I've been working on is try to flip that, you know, have the athlete, have the scheme fit the athlete, right? Have the athlete dictate the rhythm of the scheme, you know, based off their feedback. And if they are adapting, i.e. recovering from the damage that you've subject them to in the, in the time horizons you anticipate or not. Exactly. I couldn't have said it better. And I, I think if you take anything away from this podcast and our frequent rambling on this, it's it's just to change your perspective a little bit. Look at things through a different lens. Like, don't get trapped into, you know, uh, seeing things only through a physiological model or if you're a sprint coach, only a biomechanical model. Right. Mm. And if you do that, then it, it frees you up to solve the problem of getting athletes better in a number of directions and that's what we're trying to do is solve this problem and if we have more options out there versus oh man this guy this guy doesn't look very good aerobically well what do i do well we'll just go do a bunch of uh, tempo or threshold runs mm -hmm. right? if there are more options to do than that then your likelihood of you know improving and keeping improvement goes up through the roof so that's what i would encourage you guys to just step back and think again yeah uh, you made this comment steve it reminds me you said like you know because steve and i have inherited a lot of athletes you know post-collegiate athletes after one or two coaches and we do take a look at you know our colleagues trainings that they you know subject the athletes to before we work with them and it's we all have this bias right we all have this bias to kind of we have our go-to you know, problem solver type, you know, block of training. Like, uh oh, the athlete's not as fit as they were. Or they didn't perform as we thought. We're gonna go. This, we have this go-to style of training that we're gonna do for a condensed solid day of block. And like, 
get them back to snuff, right? It's, it's super interesting. Yeah, exactly. No, we were talking about this, me, you, and Danny Mackey a little bit. And, you know, I'm fortunate in the post-collegiate world to, again, get to see all these college kids uh, training logs and some post-collegiate athletes who are on different stuff. And, you know, I have a lot of respect for all the other coaches, and all of them do it. Uh, you know, the vast majority do a really good job of figuring things out and solving these problems. But what you see again and again is that we all have our own bias is that as you stated like if if our backs against the wall and we need a a big marathon specific workout then you can see people go that or go a certain direction or if an athlete is getting ready to uh race a big race we all have our our go-to workouts to you know that are that are our comfort zone to fix or the most interesting part is if an athlete is struggling a little bit to see what workouts they they, they then do after a, after a poor race or poor series of races. And again, if you've seen two or three or four coaches um, uh, logs, like we tend to ha- do the same thing. And I, I do too. I know, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm, when I can't figure something out, you know, a lot of times like I'll go to this workout or this workout or do this for a week to try and do it. Because that's that's my bias. So I think it's important to, you know, to almost see and understand that. Not that it's necessarily a bad thing, but just to be aware you're doing it versus uh, just kind of going through the motions and checking the box. And, you know, all this stuff, like it, making the investment of continuous education and finding reputable sources. And, you know, it's one reason why everyone who listens to the podcast is listening and we are blessed and thank you all for it you know but steve and i are just learners as well right we're not by no means do i i tout being the expert in xyz or abc nor does steve even though you know he has books out and all these things are the accoutrements of expertise it's keeping that learner mindset right and i think i'd be remiss if i didn't highlight the um scholar supreme seminar that steve and i uh created last spring that's still available for people um, to go through. By and far, we've had like 50 people go through, and every single person has been transformed by it. Uh, you know, it's at a higher price point, and it's not about making all this money. It's just Steve and I sweated a lot to create <laughs> this. <laughs> I mean, I still think we're not charging enough for like the many late nights that uh, we encountered and lack of sleep, but I'm really glad we did it. But I'm also like, oh, if we're gonna do another one, it's it was a it was like giving birth, you know, you know, for me and Steve and I. But it is something to check out because we do go through kind of the history of distance running in a very concise and, and distance training and modern distance training from like 1900s on in a very rapid fire concise pattern. So we can see where we started from, what incarnations and mutations happened, and how we got to here. And then we actually provide hyper specific examples of all types of training 800 1500 mile 3k steeple on half marathon that for our actual athletes that we worked with and you can see what their training was and every single coach who's done it who's gone through it has thanked us you know more than i thought it's like no you guys paid us like you don't even thank us like thank you but people have been very uh excited about it. so check it out the uh supreme our scholar supreme seminar it is really juicy and steve and i are hoping to get the courage to fork over another one because they're needed and they're also a lot of fun to do a lot of fun but a lot of work yes. uh, <laughs> but yeah check, check those things out you can find the links we'll put the links in the show notes too um and but I, I, you know i'd be remiss also if i didn't say one more thing in closing is i was talking to dan herrera yesterday you know we're just having our kind of annual um or weekly annual check-in about where we want to you know he wants to take his running and what he wants from his running etc uh and i i told dan i go dan the the moment i can no longer you know identify ways for you to improve that is the time to leave me because you have outgrown me and i you and that is the truth like as coaches if we only have so many tools in our toolbox to solve problems it is imperative that either you get better or you set the athlete free if you don't know how to help them get better. Because if you're just saying it's all about lactic threshold or it's all about mileage or it's all about VO2 connects or it's all about critical velocity, but then that athlete for a you know six, six to a year period is not seeing any growth and they're being you know religiously 
uh, prudent and um, bought in with the, the type of training methodology and guidance you're offering. It's where you have to say, look, I don't know how to get you better. You know, and either call a colleague or shop them around or set them free and wish them luck because then if you just, both of you are hanging on and just doing the same thing over and over again without any, and expecting like a different result, right? That's the definition of insanity. Yeah, uh, you know, couldn't agree more with that. Is I think that's why it's important as a coach to always looking for new tools in your toolbox, right? And not to <laughs> not to become the guy who says like, "Oh, this is the best way to train, and this is it." Because the moment you do that, you're limiting your toolbox to this one thing. And mm-hmm. it, and in fact, if you do it publicly, you you further limit yourself almost from a subconscious level because you're saying like, "This is what I'm known for. I'm not. I can't change it. Right? Even if." Even if I, I find something better because this is what I'm known for. And I mean, then all success is through that lens as well, right? The yeah. only reason we had success is because of this element or component. And it's like, you know, I, I, we're just all chefs, man. You know, it's better to have a lot of ingredients and be able to craft a lot of different dishes with the ingredients you have and don't have too, right? That's part of the fun of this and the challenge of coaching. It never gets easier, but it's constant problem solving. And everyone I know who is in this profession and stayed in it loves it because that challenge is the thing that gets them out of bed and more and it helps them feel alive 100 percent. well i think we'll leave we'll leave there again uh check out uh the show notes and some of the things we talked about and definitely the scholar seminar series we put a lot of work and effort into that and i think that you'll find it incredibly valuable